Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. But it was tough for me to go from, hey, everything is great, we're back, my friends are here, to, oh, hold on a second, I don't have a house, my dad is in jail. And emotionally, it was even more triggering. That was when I started getting anxiety, I started getting panic attacks, because just visiting my dad and having to go through jail and visiting him through the glass barrier was like something I had only seen in movies. And I couldn't understand how it could happen in real life. And in my eyes, my dad had done nothing wrong but just sacrifice. Today's most interesting location-independent entrepreneurs and world travelers. And learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. I want to start off by inviting you to subscribe to the Maverick Show's Monday Minute Email Newsletter so you can kick off each week with a super short newsletter that you can literally read in one minute. So there's no long articles, just three high value bullet points each Monday that I've put together for you that could include the best travel gear and gadgets I'm using or my favorite destinations and what to do there. Could be epic experiences and events I'm attending around the world that you could attend as well. Or it could be things to watch or quotes to ponder or travel hacks, could even be nomad communities to check out, etc. Basically, I'm going to distill down my ongoing learnings from 10 plus years of being a full-time digital nomad into three terse items of value that land in your inbox each Monday that you can consume in under 60 seconds. So if that sounds good to you, you can sign up at the maverickshow.com slash newsletter. Once again, that's the maverickshow.com slash newsletter. And now let's get into the episode. My guest today is Lumiana Shehu. She is the Balkan project lead for the Manabu movement 
which is empowering children to become advocates of a kinder, more inclusive, and sustainable future. She is also the marketing and communications manager of TUMO in Tirana, Albania, which is a tech education center that puts teens in charge of their own learning. Having spent her childhood moving around as an Albanian refugee from Greece to Canada to the U.S., she is now back in Albania and is passionate about empowering Albanian youth with remote work skills, certifications, and opportunities to find location-independent work globally. Lumiana, welcome to the show. Hello, Matt, and thank you for having me. I am so excited to have you here today. Let's just start off by setting the scene and talking about where we are recording this from today and the fact that we have agreed to make this a wine night. Yes. Unfortunately, we are not in person. I am actually on the east coast of the U.S. today. I am in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina, and I have just opened a bottle of Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley in Oregon in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, and I'm going to be drinking through that throughout this episode, but where are you today, Lumi, and what are you drinking? Nice. I love your setting, so I'm actually drinking a 100% local Albanian wine. We have a family friend who makes it literally in his garage, and it's actually very nice because with Albanian wine, everybody makes them in their garage. It's either going to be really good or a little bit sketchy, so (laughs) this one is a good batch, and I'm now in Tirana, Albania in my apartment. Well, let's talk a little bit about Albania. I have to say, I have never been, and I've spent a decent amount of time in the Balkans. I have been to Serbia, to Bosnia, to Croatia, to Montenegro. I have not yet been to Albania, but I have interviewed people on this podcast, multiple people that have listed Albania among their favorite countries in the world. So it's very high on my list, and I want to just start off allowing you to sort of share a little bit about your homeland, give some love and talk about what is it like in Albania and why should folks definitely come visit and check it out? So Albania is literally a hidden gem of just breathtaking landscapes. Like you got your beaches, but you also have your mountains. There's something for everyone. And above all of that, there's also very warm hospitality. So Albanians love when people come to visit. They will stuff you with so much food and they'd love just talking about their culture and kind of exchanging that kind of culture and information. So it's great and we also have the Shala River, which is like the Thailand of Albania. But yeah, if I could sum it up, I would say that Albania isn't yet so mainstream. So what you get here is very raw, raw natural beauty, which is amazing. Like right now, uh, you can't really see, but from my apartment window on the horizon, you see like buildings and then you see the mountains. So that's something that you rarely find in other places. And yeah, it's wonderful. That's so awesome. I'm super, super excited to come and hang out with you in Albania. You're up to some really amazing stuff too. But before we get into all of the incredible stuff that you're up to, I want to do a little bit about your backstory. Can you share where you were born and the context and timing of that? And then talk a little bit about your early childhood and what your experience was like. 
Of course. So I was born in Jurkaster, Albania, which is a wonderful little town here. I was born in 98, but Albania since 97 was in a civil unrest due to some pyramid scheme failures that happened in Albania. So it started as a small rebellion. People weren't getting their money back. The government allegedly was involved and they weren't really supporting people. And from that small rebellion, it kind of grew into an actual civil war. So things were rocky. There was an economic crisis and people were panicked. So my parents had me. And as soon as they had me, they left me with my grandma and they were like, no, we cannot find a future here. They came from middle class families, but really neither of them finished even high school. So they were like, okay, things are really not looking good here. So we're going to move to Greece because a lot of people at that time were doing that. And then what age were you when you lived in Greece? What was that experience like for you? And then what ultimately caused your family to move out of Greece? Yeah, so I moved into Greece almost a year later. So for me, I can't really remember back settling into Greece because I was too small. But for my parents, I know that it was unsettling because their newborn didn't really know them. So they were struggling in a new country, but also they were struggling with this baby. My grandma was practically my mom at that point. So I know from then that it was really tough at first. But Greece, honestly, I remember Greece and schooling there was great. We had our friends. We settled in nicely. But what happened around 2009, 2010, there was also an economic crisis in Greece. I think looking back, my parents were kind of getting flashbacks from what happened to Albania. So they were like, okay, panicked. This is not looking good. We need to figure out what we're going to do. Do we want to stay here? And at the time, we had some friends in Canada. And those friends, they were like, hey, why don't you guys like apply for a work visa and come here because everything is great here you guys are probably going to settle in quite nicely. So my dad goes through the whole work visa application. He finds a company, they hire him, they go through the process of getting the visa and he eventually gets it. So what we were kind of thinking was, okay, my dad goes, he settles in, he checks out this new job, this new country, and eventually we'll join him. But what actually happened, and my dad went to Calgary, that's where his job was. And what happened when he got there was the company was a scam. So he gets there and there is no company no one's picking up the phone no one's really giving answers and he was just completely confused thankfully I believe he had a friend not really like a a close friend but he had a friend there that he was able to reach out to and hey I'm kind of stranded I don't know what to do so that friend helped him settle into Calgary and for my parents they just didn't see a future in Albania so what we actually ended up doing here in Greece is we found this lady who was willing to sell her passport to us and she had two daughters and herself so we bought three passports just so that my mom my sister and I could cross the border to Canada yeah I was only 11 at that time so I don't think I fully grasped the concept of what was happening it was definitely weird but I was like okay I'm gonna go meet my dad and I miss him at the time so talk a little bit about that experience at that age. What did your parents tell you about what was going to happen? And then how did it actually unfold? What was your process like moving to Canada in that way? Yeah, so my mom was basically, listen, girls, my sister was only five at the time. We have to act as if we are these girls that are on the paper, where think about it as if you're playing, 
we're going to be role playing and we have to act as if we are these girls and we are kind of putting all our risk into this because we're going to go to dad. And I remember actually a day before we left to Canada, I had some school books and I was taking one with me and I was like, I saw my name on the front page and I was like, oh wait, I have to put in my new name. So like I crossed it out and I wrote the passport name just to make sure that like everything was all right. So yeah, what happened is, so we bought normal tickets, right? As if we were going to go there for a visit. So we get on a plane, we arrive to Toronto, Canada, because at that time my dad had moved to Toronto because we, our friends initially were there. And as we get out of the airport, we go through the line and we come across the immigration officer. And at first it started as usual routine questioning. But what was unique about our case was that from appearance-wise, my sister, the girl that was on her passport, was 17, whereas she was actually five. And me and my mom kind of looked alike, but not really. We're a little bit closer in age, but that was like the one thing we we're like, oh my God, like how is she going to pass through a 17? So he starts as routine questioning, and I'm the only one who can answer his questions because I was the only one that spoke English because I had learned some of it in school. And I think, honestly, from the start, he knew. Like, he knew something was off, which I mean, looking back, like, like, no shit. <laughs> like, how are you going to pass a five-year-old as a 17-year-old? He wasn't really stuck. He didn't even mention that part, even though from the questions that he asked me, it started getting so detailed. Like, how old are you? When's your birthday? Where are you coming from? What's your life in Greece? Like, he was kind of trying to catch me in a lie and asking all these questions, but he never mentioned that my sister, you could clearly see he was five, but on that passport, she was 17. And then my, honestly, my gut feeling is that he knew he didn't bring in even a translator. Like I spoke English, but not really that well. So in my mind, when we discuss it, I feel like he saw these two little girls and the mom and he was like, okay, I'm just going to let it go. I'm going to let it pass. And we were like stressed. So you could tell that we weren't there just to visit. But yeah, he asked all these questions. And at the end, there was this one question. He was like, okay, you answer this and I'll let you go. And I was like there, I was like waiting. I was so stressed. I was like sweating. And I was like, okay, what question is he going to ask now? And he goes, do you have your ears pierced? And I was like, okay, that's weird. Yes, I do. And it was just this totally coincidental thing because in the passport picture, the girl that I was posing as, she had her ears pierced and she had these like dice earrings. And he was like, okay, if you have your ears pierced, like that's the final detail, you can go. And I was like, yes. He was okay, go. And that's kind of how we got into Canada. Wow. Yeah. So you reunited with your father. And then mm -hmm. what was your experience like in Canada at that time? From all experiences, and even though it was a total culture shock from Greece, I think it was the smoothest one. And I think it's because Canada is such a melting pot of different nationalities and people. They have their systems clearly organized and laid out for new people coming in. So yes, it felt weird. I didn't really speak English. My mechanism was just laughing whenever someone asked me a question and I didn't understand. I would just like laugh. I didn't speak the language. I didn't really understand a lot of stuff, how they worked. Totally Totally different from Greece, but the people at school and the locals were very understanding that we were immigrants and coming from a different country. So it never felt, oh my God, I'm not accepted here. The tough part was just total culture shock. How do you settle in and start this totally new school system? Think about Greece. We would go every morning, we would pray. And every Friday, like once or twice a month, we would go to church because Greece is super religious. And then you go to Canada. And first of all, we had a lot of new courses at school that 
I hadn't even kind of addressed in Greece, like world religions and teachers were coming in dressed up like super into the lessons they were doing. And I was like, okay, that's cool. But what's happening? Totally different thing. So yeah, it was tough in the sense of the extreme opposite of what I was used to. And I couldn't really talk to people about my situation. I couldn't tell them how I got in there. We applied for a refugee status and we just had this, I don't know, it was like this idea that like, if you're a refugee, you've done something super wrong. So I felt like I couldn't share that with people. I felt we had done something very wrong and people would like judge me for that. So that was tough because it took me a really long time to tell people, hey, this is what my story is truly like. But yeah, we settled in. We applied for refugee status. We went through the whole process. And actually, when we applied for the refugee status, not only did we apply with our reasoning of, hey, we actually came here initially legally, but we also applied with the reasoning of we come from a country that has total civil unrest. There's a lot of blood feuds. And we thought that we were not safe in Albania. So when we were applying for that refugee status, in our mind, we were applying with a very valid reasoning. And we spent a lot of time in immigration offices. We got a lawyer, get reference letters from school, be like, hey, she's a good student, we want her here. So it was like this long legal process until we had our final court date. And when we had our final court date, our lawyer, who looking back, wasn't as great (laughs) as we thought, but he was like, hey, so okay, we have our court date tomorrow. You guys, please don't come dressed well. Don't talk too much. We don't want to seem too confident to them. You don't want to look like you have your things all figured out because it looks bad. What you really want to do is show them that you need help and they have to feel sorry for you so that they really allow you to stay in the country. So what ended up happening is we go into this court date and we're dressed like in jeans and t-shirts and we're not really talking much. We're letting the lawyer do all the talking, which looking back, it felt like we made it seem as if we just didn't care. So I really, truly think that in that day, that judge wasn't really able to get our full story and understand that, yes, these people like are actually not okay from the country and they want to stay here. And on the other hand, it was the first time in Canada where we kind of got hit with a real judgmental label because the judge immediately was like, oh, you're Albanians? No, I don't trust you. I don't trust your documents. I know your government is corrupt and you guys always do this. Albanians always come in this way. So I don't trust a thing coming out of your mouth. Honestly, that was the first time that had happened in Canada or no one told us of this like image of Albanians and coming from this country. So that day was a shock to us. And we get a while later, we get a reply and it was obviously a rejection. And that lady was so dead set on rejecting our citizenship that she probably had some kind of rejection template. She hadn't even crossed out the information from the previous case. So all the information in that rejection letter was instead of Albania, it was Israel. There was other names instead of our names. So she was so set on our rejection that she didn't even take the time to properly go through that document and look through our story and give some valid reasoning. Wow. So how did your family respond to that once the rejection was official and you got it in writing and that door had closed? What then did your family decide to do? So my parents had this thing, they've had it like since we were small, where whenever we had to go through something, they would sit us down as a family and it never mattered what age we were. It was never like, oh, they're three, they're five, they're 11, they don't know what's happening. No, they would sit us down, they would explain the situation clearly and they would say, okay, we're thinking of doing this, what do you think? So at this time, we're sitting down in our living room. For me, 
and for the whole family, I guess, well adapted at that point, because it had been several years, that even though we got a rejection, it wasn't sinking in that we weren't able to stay in Canada. In our mind, I had like laid out the university I wanted to go to and like all of that. But yeah, that didn't happen. And when it really settled in for me was when we had that conversation in our living room, because they were like, listen, this means we have to go back to Albania. But we can't go back to Albania. Like, it's bad there. So what we're thinking is, let's try going to the States. And how we're going to do that is we would cross a field, get across the border. So even I remember even me being like, yes, I just have one thing. And that thing is that we're going to go, but I want to take our dog with us. (laughs) And they were like, okay, let's do that. I was like, not willing to leave our dog in Canada. So you had family in the United States. Like what was the actual plan for crossing the border? And then how did that go? Yeah, we had family in the United States. They were like, hey, we're willing to help you guys settle in if you could do this. Albanians, wherever they are, they're very willing to help other Albanians. And you'll hear me say family a lot. Some of these people are distant cousins, but they were truly family because Albanians, wherever they are, they want to help each other. They don't ask questions. They don't judge like, oh, why are you coming in this way? They just want to help you. So yes, we had family there. And we also had heard cases of people crossing this field from Calgary to Montana. And from all these legends and myths, we were hearing like, hey, grab a blanket, make sure you're dressed warm because it's super cold. You're going to have fences. You're going to climb over stuff. It's going to be tough. So we have our blankets, we have our coats, and we have a backpack. And in my backpack, it was my dog instead of my clothes because I was literally carrying him like in my backpack. (laughs) And we were like ready and we get there. And I'm not kidding you. It was like a 30 second, one minute run. It was so fast. There was no fences, no need for blankets. We just got to Montana and it almost felt weird. Is this how easy (laughs) it is? And then we were in the United States. We were in Montana, but we grabbed a car from Montana to Chicago where our family was. And then how was your experience in Chicago? How long were you there? What was your next move? Yes. So it was a little bit tougher than Canada. Like looking back, I don't know why. Maybe for me, it was just I was a little bit older. So things were getting a little bit more serious and not just as fun. But at the same time, it was because it felt like I had just kind of figured out my friendships and I'd made friends and I'd settled in and then everything was taken away from me. And now we had to start from zero again. So settle in a new house, settle in a new school, make new friends. So it was not easy. It was also winter time and moving places during winter is a little bit more difficult because it's cold. So there's not much activities going on. You have to stay inside, which is not great for adapting to a new place. So we go to Chicago. I almost closed off at the time. Like I remember even at school, it was a lot, lot tougher for me to make friends. I stayed to myself. We had a lot of drug issues at school. We had a lot of kids who had mental health issues. And for me, that was quite new, not totally new, but there was a lot more of it. So um, that coupled with the fact that I had just gotten there made it really tough for me. But even for my parents, they had a tougher time finding work. Just overall, we just didn't seem to fit in there. And what actually ended up happening is we had our friends back in Canada say, hey, we have this really, really good lawyer. I think he could really make it happen for you guys here. So just find a way to get back. We have talked with him and he will get you citizenship. He thinks your story is very cool and he can make it happen. And once again, my parents sat me down. They sat me down with my sister. They were like, hey, this is what the case is. We know it's tough. Do you guys want to do this? 
And once again, we were like, yes, let's do it. And it was because I was like, I want to go back to my friends. I want to go back to my school. So what we did this time is we actually paid a truck driver cross us back to Canada. I cannot explain to you. I don't even know if I fully grasped the concept of what we were doing. So there's this like huge trucks that carry huge containers and they have this one compartment behind the passenger and driver seat that is usually for the driver to sleep. So what we had to do is ask for crawl in there. And he would drive us across the border with his container stuff. It was honestly up to fate. Even when we were talking with him, he was like, I cannot guarantee you anything because there are routine checkups and they could figure out that you guys are there. And if they figure that out, you're on your own. I'm not covering for you guys. So we are all cramped in this small compartment and we are just looking into each other's eyes and just hoping while we're crossing the border that no one stops us because we really didn't know what was going to happen there. It didn't. Once again, we crossed the border, we passed, and it was just this feeling of exhilaration, of almost disbelief. What are the chances? But yeah, we're back in Canada. We're back in Toronto. I was so excited to go back to my friends and I was so excited that I didn't want to go to another school, but my parents couldn't find an apartment in that area. So that year, what ended up happening is I lived away from my parents. It was the first year living away from my parents because I lived with a roommate with this lady. Her apartment was near my school, so I could go back to my old school. And we go back. Everything feels amazing. We sit down to talk with this lawyer. He's telling us like, hey, you guys have a great story. There's no way they're not going to give you their citizenship. We're paying him. Things just go down from that because the lawyer ends up actually being a scam. One day he gets our money and he just doesn't pick up his phone. We can't find him. No one knows where he is. No one knows his name. We're just stuck. What happened then? It was like, okay, what do we do now? We just decided to keep living there and see what we could do. So as my dad was going to work, he's driving. What happens is while he's parking the car, he bumps into a street sign. This lady from across the street sees that. And because in Canada, everything is like very strict to the rules. She calls police and she's like, hey, this guy bumped this street sign and you guys should come check it out because they're construction workers. Maybe there's something fishy going on. So the police come and they're like, hey, this is routine checkup. Probably guys probably have no issue, but we just want to show up and see that everything is okay. And everything was okay. The only problem was my dad couldn't show him any driver's license or any papers at all because we had a deportation order on our heads. The moment that the officer realizes that, he arrests him and he's, hold on a second, you have a deportation order. So my dad ends up going to immigration jail. Can you talk about that experience for you? Mm -hmm. When your dad got arrested, what was the overall financial impact on your family and everything else, but mm -hmm. also the emotional impact on you at that age? What was that period of your life like? It was difficult in every aspect. First of all, Obviously, my dad wasn't working anymore, so we couldn't afford rent. So we ended up being homeless. My mom and my sister, they're living with some friends of ours, and I had to live with my best friend. Looking back, I'm even grateful for that we had people to keep us in for a few months and let us stay with them. But it was tough for me to go from, hey, everything is great, we're back, my friends are here, to, oh, hold on a second, I don't have a house, my dad is in jail. And emotionally, it was even more triggering. That was when I started getting anxiety, I started getting panic attacks, because just visiting my dad 
and having to go through jail and visiting him through the glass barrier was something I had only seen in movies. And I couldn't understand how it could happen in real life. And in my eyes, my dad had done nothing wrong, but just sacrifice. As he's staying there, he stayed there for eight months. And he only did that because he was able to talk with the officers. The officers loved his story. And they were like, hey, listen, we can deport you tomorrow. Or we could give you some time so that your kids could go through schooling. And he was like, no, absolutely. I want them to finish school. I don't want to have to up and move them again in the middle of school. Let them finish the years. I stay here. It's okay. That's what he ended up doing. And I'm thankful for that. It's not even about me finishing school, but I'm just thankful that he had the love and the passion to make himself go through eight months of immigration jail. And okay, I don't want to make it super dramatic. Immigration jail is not as bad as actual jail, but he had to see a lot of tough stuff there because all the people going to immigration jails were people who did not want to go back to their country, were super sad, super depressed. He made himself go through that for eight months just for us. Wow. And then what happened at the end of eight months? So then we had to go back to Albania. It was just, again, a state of disbelief. Everything we would hear about Albania was like, I don't know, horrible, corruption, crime. Everybody was like, don't come back. So to me, it was this huge monster. And I was like, where? Like, I'm going to prison. And this idea in my head was as if I was going back to, I don't know, a field of war. But we had to do it. And we ended up going back. So we come to Albania because my parents aren't originally from Tirana. So once again, start from scratch, get a new house, go to a new school, settle in. For me, it was tough because I didn't know the language. So my parents spoke Albania in our house, but we weren't really attached to the culture because we were worried that if we were, it became too attached to the culture in Albania, then we wouldn't adapt in all these different countries. But that meant that when I went back that I spoke zero Albania, I could understand it, but I could not speak it. It was a total culture shock. The school system was different. People were different. So those first couple of years, I'm not going to lie. It's not like I came back and I was like, ooh, home. And I've never lived here. So it wasn't home. It felt like once again, picking it up, leaving people behind, starting from somewhere new. My sister had even much more of a tougher time because she had to go through a lot more years in the Albanian schooling system, which I'm going to be honest, it's not the greatest. And my parents had the toughest time because they had done everything. They had lost so much to give us a better future. And for them, it was just like, okay, failure. Like we're back here and we're worse than what we started so yeah, coming back, like the first couple of years was not easy, but it got a lot, lot better. Talk about that. How did the experience evolve and improve over time? Yes. Yeah, so for me, the turning point was getting my Vodafone internship, like kind of coming into contact with the work market in Albania. And the reason is because the youth in Albania is very demotivated about the country. So the last year of high school that I did here and throughout university, people that I was surrounded with were talking just shit about Albania. We want to leave. We don't want to do this. Everything sucks. Everything sucks. And I believe it also comes from this history of suffering that has made people stick to a mindset of complaining, despite the fact that a lot of things have improved in Albania. But then I went into my internship and I met all these people that actually liked Albania. They were like, you know, it's not that bad to live here. 
So I was almost forced to do a reset because I also didn't like where my mental spot was at because it was also negative. So I was like, okay, it can't be that bad. Let me tackle this country as if it's any other new country. And let me try to learn about my culture, learn about this country. I hadn't seen any cities, any towns. So I started this phase of exploration of what Albania was about. Turned out pretty great. (laughs) Amazing. Can you talk about that? exploration after your Vodafone internship and that experience, what were some of the next steps for you? Yeah. So I explored the country and like I said, the raw nature was beautiful. You can find nature in the States and Canada and all these other places, but you kind of have to drive long hours to get there. Whereas here, wherever you turn, you can see the mountains, you can go near the beach very closely. So I started falling back in love with Albania. And then after Vodafone, I actually came across this new project that was going on, which was Tumo Tirana. Tumo is a technology educational after-school center that puts kids in charge of their own learning, as you said. So students learn eight disciplines that kind of intersect between art and technology. So, you know, you have programming, but you also have graphic design. And they do that in a totally different system from what school in Albania is usually at. So... Just to summarize it, school in Albania is you memorize and you repeat. Memorize, repeat. They don't really evolve your critical thinking skills. You read what's happening in the textbook, you say it back to the teacher. TUMO has this methodology. It doesn't come just from Albania. TUMO is originally from Armenia, but it's also in Paris, in Berlin. It's opening up in Los Angeles. So the methodology, that, the way that it works is through self-learning and workshops. So students are working on concrete projects. They're working individually and in a team. And at the same time that they kind of, that they build their tech skills, they're also building their soft skills. So entrepreneurship, communication, and all of that. So when I saw that, I was like, oh my God. And I'm in the field of marketing. And even though I went through university, a lot of the stuff that I've learned in this field has been through self-learning. It's mostly been through online courses and people in this field that I could talk to rather than actual school. So when I saw this, I was like, I would have loved to have had this and I need to work there. So I ended up applying and yeah, now I'm the marketing and communication managers at Tumo Tirana. And again, it helped me also fall in love with the country. So it helped me work in my field, but also in a project that could help me empower the youth through this new way of learning and these tech skills. And in Tumo, what ended up happening is we hosted the first Digital Nomad Festival in Tirana. And there I got to meet Andreas Wilgerdes, who is a digital nomad. He's also a founder, an entrepreneur, and an overall wonderful human being. Shout out to Andreas. Absolutely incredible guy. Big shout out. Much love. So talk about that. How did you meet him and what came out of it? Yes. So actually, before I even met him, my colleagues called me up and they're like, hey, we have these people that are coming from the Digital Nomad Fest and they want to check out the venue before it actually happens, which was actually pretty routine for us. So they're telling me that Andreas is going to come to meet up with me. And I go to the reception and who's actually waiting for me is Maya. And Maya was his 11 year old daughter. And she's like, hey, I'm here to go through a tour with you. And I was like, oh, okay. And youth here, like in Albania, just to like put it into context, youth can be kind of shy. It's just mostly due to the schooling system. So when I saw her, I was like, oh, okay. So we take this tour and I'm talking with Maya. And it was like talking to a friend. 
she had like all these amazing stories to share and she was so eloquent. And I was like, my God, like, how is this happening? And then Andreas comes through for the tour and we spent some time throughout the whole Digital Nomad Festival where we got to discuss several issues. And one of the the things I love about Andreas is that he's very um, passion-driven and inspirational. So he doesn't just look at the money, 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 but he looks at a lot of the impact that comes from a lot of work. And one day I was telling him, the Albanian youth is super talented. Like they get these tech skills, like they're building brands, they're designing, It's all super amazing. But the one issue they have is finding jobs locally. That is for two reasons. First is due to age. So businesses here, you know, they want you to go through the usual, like you're 18, you go to university, then you get some years of experience and we have you at like 25, 26. The second is because there also isn't a lot of job opportunities in, for example, 3D modeling, in animation, in all the skills that we teach at Tumo. So I was talking to Maya and Andreas about this, and Maya was like, why don't you just teach them to work remotely? And I was like, oh, hold on. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Like They have the tech skills that they could put to use through freelancing. And then it was just this like roller coaster of like, okay, how can we make this happen? And Andreas was like, why don't you meet Tihana? Tihana is her and Andreas have co-founded the Manabu movement. And just to give some information to people, the Manabu movement is a youth foundation where what we want to do through Manabu is we listen to the youth. So we listen to their dreams and their beliefs, and we are only there as adults to make those true. So they're leading the way and we want to make them happy. We want to empower them. So With the Manapu movement, we were like, let's start this virtual assistant program in Tirana. The aim is to help this youth set up their business, their virtual assistant skills, their client acquisition, communication skills, and put all the tech skills that they have to use through freelancing. But we were like, okay, but how do we do that? Like, we need someone that could help us teach them how to be freelancers, because especially for Albania, it's a totally new concept. We have some people who know about remote work, but it's really new. And actually, I think even past the the Digital Nomad Fest was one of the biggest things about Tirana where they, okay, locals got to kind of interact with this idea of digital nomading and remote work. So Andreas was like, you know, I know this wonderful human being and her name is Hannah. And she has one of the best courses for virtual assistant. Yes. Big shout out to Hannah Dixon. Maverick Show listeners know Hannah Dixon because she has been on the podcast. So that is amazing. Tell us your Hannah Dixon story. Yeah. So we meet Hannah and we're like, hey, we want to do this and this and this in Albania. Maybe it sounds a little bit weird, but we really want to empower the youth. And Hannah was like, no, it doesn't sound weird at all. Like, I'm in. We'll give them the course. So... Now what student with the group, the first group of students that we had is what they did is they went through Hannah's course. And this course is powerful because it gives them access to 27,000 virtual assistants that help them build and improve their business. So the interaction in that community is insane. And they go through that course and I help do the handholding locally. So we meet up once, twice a week to talk about what we did or what the course was about. Did we understand it? Can we apply it to real life? And now we have 10 students who have set up their Instagram pages, have set up their portfolios, and they are ready to work as freelancers. 
All right, I want to pause here to let you know that I have recorded a free video training for you on stylish minimalist packing, which teaches you how to travel the world with carry-on luggage only without sacrificing fashion and style. Now, I have been a full-time digital nomad for over 10 years, and I go to beach locations and ski slopes and dressy nights out and local cultural events, and I never check a bag. And my carry-on includes a three-piece suit, a professional podcasting studio, an espresso maker, a wine aerator, and the list goes on. Now, I have been teaching workshops around the world at Nomad conferences about how to do this, and I have finally distilled it into a 60-minute video training that I recorded for you, and you can watch at themaverickshow.com slash packing. It's completely free. It's just going to ask you for your email, which will put you on to the Maverick Show's Monday Minute email newsletter list if you're not already subscribed. And then you can press play and watch the video. It's waiting for you right now at themaverickshow.com slash packing. And now back to the episode. I love that. And I love it because, you know, the concept of location independence and being able to work fully remotely gives you so many options. A lot of people think about it as the freedom of mobility, the freedom to travel around the world and live where you want and work where you want. But it also gives you the freedom to choose not to travel and to stay in your homeland and to have a thriving, prosperous economic future without needing to leave. And so I think that's really amazing that you are empowering the youth with all of those options if they want to stay in Albania and build a business and all that, or if they want to be a digital nomad and travel around, they have all of those options available to them. So that's amazing. Yes, for me, it's what we talked about. So most of the youth, they think they have to immigrate. Like, if we really want to do something in this world, we have to immigrate outside of Albania. But it's not true. Albania has a lot of great opportunities. And like you said, as freelancers, yes, you have the option to travel and please do. But you don't have to do it by getting on a boat to go to London. Yeah. And the digital nomads are coming to Albania. I mean, some of the major work travel programs like Remote Year, for example, which I have patronized, have recently added Tirana, Albania, to one of their destinations. And remote workers from around the world are coming to Albania because it's so amazing and they want to experience it. They want to work from there. Yes. And I think it's wonderful because not only can digital nomads and remote workers come here and remind us as Albanians so we have a wonderful country that people love visiting us but also the great thing about digital nomads is that they can also come in and share know-how and do how with the locals because like I said the locals usually get stuck in that mentality of like oh there's nothing to do in Albania like we can't do anything but we have all these nomads and remote workers who are coming in and they're like no you guys like you could do so much here. There are so many business opportunities. And like I always say, Albania, because we don't have a lot of the, we're not first adapters for a lot of technological stuff. But that means that we have the opportunity to see first adapters, see what works for them, and immediately apply it. Let me ask you to reflect on a few things over the course of your journey now, looking back in terms of 
the stories that you've told, you have experienced a lot of different types of travel. You've experienced forced migration and deportation. You've also experienced leisure tourism and work travel. I know you were just in Italy last week. You've experienced the digital nomad life and all of that. So when you now think about the concept of travel, what does travel mean to you today? Travel to me is just a profound exploration of cultures, of connections and personal growth. So for me, it's about adapting and meeting these cool cultures and people and growing together. I can let someone know, hey, I did this and we do this in Albania, but I can also go to like, I don't know, Barcelona and I see super cool stuff that I've never seen before. So I'm not a very much, I don't know, hotel, resort type of person when I travel. I travel because I want to find those small corner stores and talk to the people there and just see how, okay, from one week for two weeks or for one month, how can I adapt to this place? I also want to ask for your reflections on your Albanian identity. So when you think back about what being Albanian meant to you during these different periods of your life, including obviously the period after you returned to Albania up till today, how has your Albanian identity evolved and what does it mean to you today? So I was very embarrassed to be Albanian at first. Now, a lot of cases we see the news with London, it's still tied to all of these immigrants coming illegally and doing this bad shit in our country. So at first I was very much embarrassed. And even when I was traveling from place to place to place to place, I wouldn't tell people I'm Albanian, but I would tell them I'm from the last country I just came from. So, you know, I'm from Greece, I'm from Canada, because it was easier. Like I said, everybody and news had made Albania a monster. Now, although from all the travels and my immigration story, I'm not super patriotic. I don't think the country where you're born ties you to like this place. I think it's the people and your experiences that make you. But I am happy to say that I am Albanian and I am happy to share a lot of interesting and cool new stuff that we have here as well. So it's definitely evolved and I'm definitely a lot more comfortable just to say that, yes, I am from Albania. I also want to ask you, just sort of reflecting back on your story and up until the present, how do you think about the concept of home? You know, I struggled for a very long time because I could never say that a specific house or a specific place was home. I was lost for a long time. and Every couple of years, we would go to a new home, a new school, so I could never say I have this childhood home, which usually like kids and people I was surrounded with had one. Looking back, again, I don't think home is a house or a place. Home is my best friend from Canada, but also my best friend from Greece. But it's also my family who sacrificed that went through this story with me. So home to me, again, it's the people, it's the experiences. And it doesn't have to be this one set place or house at a time. How has your experience as a refugee impacted your perception, maybe empathy, maybe relation to other people around the world that are in those refugee positions, like when you see news about refugees from anywhere, from Syria, from you know all these places around the world, how do you connect with those people's experience based on your own? 
I get very emotional about it. I don't see them as these people who are doing something wrong or who are illegally, you know, moving across countries. I see them as these people who are suffering from where they're from. And just this past couple of days, we saw, unfortunately, the boat of Syrians that was going to Greece and it sunk. Stories like that, people that I hear that go through this stuff really touch me on a personal level because of my story. And that's why I'm so closely tied to this program because if I think about 10, 20 years, I don't want people to have to like go to these means to travel just to find a better future. I want them to have opportunities in their country, but also have opportunities outside their country and just feel okay to be and feel safe wherever they are. That's amazing. I want to ask you one more question, just building on that, and then we'll wrap this up and move into the lightning round. You are now obviously very plugged into the digital nomad community. There's a lot of ways that people can come and experience Tirana and Albania, whether it's through an organized program like Remote Year or a digital nomad festival, or just come on their own and post up and hang out. How can people support and contribute to the initiatives that you are involved with that you've been talking about during this episode? How can digital nomads or other people make a contribution? So there's two things. First, it's a mentoring circle. So I invite any digital nomads or experts to come in and share know-how and do-how with our students. The closer they are with other freelancers or experts in other fields, the more they can get experience and be able to get their career journey started. The second thing is funding. So funding, and I'm not talking just money to get them to do these courses, but I'm also talking software. Like not all Albanian kids have a good phone, a good laptop to do their work. It could be software, it could be hardware or just funding. All right. We are going to link all of that up in the show notes. So folks can just go to one place at themaverickshow.com, go to the show notes for this episode. There you're going to find direct links on how you can learn more about and participate and contribute to these incredible initiatives. All right, Lumi, at this point, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? Yes, I am. Let's do it. The lightning round. All right, what is one book maybe that has significantly impacted you over the years you'd most recommend people check out? Atomic Habits by James Clear. Love it. That is a good one. Who is one person currently alive today that you've never met that you'd most love to have dinner with, just you and that person for an evening of dinner and conversation? Stephen Barlett. He's a British entrepreneur. And it's not because I like the entrepreneurship hustle mentality, but it's because he brings entrepreneurship to an emotional level so people can understand that it's not just hustle, no sleep. It's actually work and sacrifice. And people go through a lot of stuff in their entrepreneurship journey. So I like the way he thinks and I'd love to have a conversation with him. All right, knowing everything that you know now, Lumi, if you could go back in time and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Lumi? I'm definitely an overthinker. So what I would say to her is, yes, you've planned everything out and you thought you'd be somewhere else and you don't see now where you're going to be, but the world has something even more amazing waiting for you and you're right where you're supposed to be. So enjoy the moment. Don't think so much. <laughs> all right. Of all the places that you've now been in the world, what are three of your favorite destinations you'd most recommend other people should definitely check out? I would have to say Barcelona. 
I just love the vibes of that city. I would have to say Budapest was one of the ones that I don't really have high expectation, but it was so wonderful. And Toronto. I know it's like this city like lifestyle, but it's just, it has wonderful people there, so. I agree, Lumi. I actually went to high school in Buffalo, New York, which is about a two hour drive from Toronto. So we were up there all the time. It is a really amazing city, super diverse, people from all over the world, really, really incredible place. So I think that's awesome. All right, last question. What are your top three bucket list destinations, places you have not yet been highest on your list. For so long, all digital nomads that have come to Tirana have told me go to Bansko, Bulgaria. So that was like on my mind for a long time and I'll be there in August. So I'll put that in the list. I would have to say Japan is another one just because I would love to see how like the technology there intersects with their culture. And Iceland has always just, it looks beautiful. So I would love to go there one time. Awesome picks. Yeah, I was in Bonsko last year. I spoke at the Bonsko Nomad Fest, and I've been a couple of times, so that's a really cool pick. And then Japan is just incredibly special and unique. I've been to Japan probably three times, I think, by now, and it is just a really, really, really special place. So when you're ready to plan that trip, hit me up, Lumi, and I will give you some tips. All right. At this point, I want you to let folks know how they can find you, how they can follow you on social media, connect with you. How do you want people to come into your world? So you can find me Lumiana Shehu, but you can find me on Instagram, on LinkedIn, I'm on all of social media. And I would also urge you guys to check out Manabu VA program to check out what we're doing in Albania. That's on Instagram as well. And if you want to find out more about Manabu, manabumovement.org, the website has all the cool information about that. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Just a final reminder to subscribe to the Maverick Show's Monday Minute email newsletter. No long articles here, just three bullet points that I put together for you and drop into your email inbox every Monday that you can consume in under 60 seconds. You can subscribe at themaverickshow.com slash newsletter. Again, that's themaverickshow.com slash newsletter. We are going to link all of that up in one place. So just go to themaverickshow.com. Go to the show notes for this episode. There you're going to find all of the social media handles to connect with Lumi, to connect with the Manabu movement, the websites to learn more about it, to learn how you can contribute, and all of that good stuff in one place. Lumi, this was so amazing. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so, so much for having me. It was like literally a friendly discussion, wine. It felt very, very natural. So I love this. This is how all podcast interviews should be. You see, this is why I do most of my interviews over wine. (laughs) Next time, I expect you to come to Tirana and I'll be the one asking the questions. We definitely got (laughs) to hang out in Tirana for sure. Albania is crazy high on my list. You and I need to hang out. We need to do wine in person and we need to kick it in Albania. So that is definitely in the works. And that will happen very soon. I'm looking forward to it. Perfect. I'll save a bottle of local wine for you. I love it. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. 
Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you buy cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber. To get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals, schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.